Good morning. <clears throat> what a blessing to be able to be here today to worship God together and to uh, sing these wonderful songs, be reminded of God's goodness to us and have fellowship with each other in our common faith in Jesus Christ. I want to take just a moment, because several of you have asked me already if we are continuing to be in contact with the churches in Ukraine, and the answer is yes, we are in daily contact with them. Uh, things are growing more difficult by the day. The bombings continue, uh, non-military targets, hospitals, schools, um, places that should never, should never be. Uh, but our brothers and sisters there are continuing to walk by faith. Uh, but one of the most difficult things that's happening now is that so many of them are leaving and families are becoming separated because the men cannot leave. And so the women and children are leaving for Poland and Slovakia and other places. And uh, they, of course, have no way of knowing when they'll be able to be back together again. And that, that is indeed sad and hard for them. And uh, so we want to pray for them about that. The good news is we believe that we have found a way to get funds into them. And uh, we should know that for certain by tomorrow. And uh, so we are thankful to the Lord for that because that's been quite a challenge. Kelly has been working on that um, ever since the war, since before the war began. Uh, and so we're grateful to see that come to fruition. They will need that. They can still buy food and uh, uh, some medicines and water and things of that nature. And they want to have enough not only for themselves but to share with the community around them with the orphanages, uh, the orphanage at uh, Romani. And uh, so by God's grace and, and his will, then they will be able to, to do that very soon. So we appreciate your concern for them and your continued prayers. But let's, uh, let's start by having a prayer together, especially for them, please. Father, we come before you today so overjoyed at your goodness and mercy and love, yet at the same time, Father, with heaviness in our hearts uh, because of what's happening in Ukraine. And, Father, we pray for your blessing and protection over your people there, that you would watch out for them, that you would care for them, that you would keep them from harm. And above all, Father, we continue to pray that you would bring this hostility to an end, that they can live the quiet and peaceable lives to which you have called them, to which you have called all of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever thought about what you would say to the people that you love if you knew that you didn't have very long to live. That's what Paul was doing when he wrote his last letter, the letter to his beloved son in the faith, as he describes him, young man by the name of Timothy, because he knew that he was very soon going to face the executioner's sword. As he put it, he said, the time of my departure is at hand. And he was well aware of that. And so he wanted to give Timothy some final instructions. I'm, I'm about to leave, Timothy. And so here's what I want you to do. Here's what you need to do. You need to step into the gap that's going to be left by my absence. And he said, yeah, you need to take your share of suffering. You need to preach the word. You need to fulfill your ministry. And so he writes this very stirring letter. Uh, not, not a letter of self-pity, but a letter of hope and a letter of instruction to Timothy. But here's how he describes what's happening to himself in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6. He said, I am already being poured out as a drink offering 
you remember in the Old Testament, some of the offerings that were made were not animals or grain. Some of them were oil and wine, and so those would be poured out upon the altar. And that's how Paul saw his life. He said, I'm already being poured out. The offering is already being made. My life is being poured out on the altar of God as a sacrifice to him. Now, we don't know how long after Paul wrote this that his execution took place, but the impression we get is that it was not very long. Sentence had been passed, and the process was underway, and so he said, I'm being poured out even as I write this. But he speaks of his departure as going away. That's, that's his word. And it, and it comes from a word that has to do with loosing something. It was a word that was used about untying animals, unyoking them at the end of a day's work. It was a word that was used of, of untying the ropes of a, of a tent when it was time to strike camp and move on. It was a, a word that was used about unbinding people's fetters when they had been tied up. And so, so when Paul speaks of his departure, he's not just thinking of leaving He's actually thinking of being loosed. He's thinking of being released. He's thinking of being able to go from where he is to something that is far, far better. And as he looks back on his life and his work, he uses some very vivid imagery to describe it. He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. He saw himself as an athlete in a contest. And he said, I fought the, the fight. And the word for fight comes from the same word where we get our word agony. I fought the agon, he says. And he says, I have finished the race. He didn't say I beat everybody else out. That wasn't the point. But he finished. He finished the race. He finished the course that God had set before him. And he knew that he could only have done that if he didn't quit and if he competed according to the rules. But then he said, I have kept the faith. He had held fast to the gospel, no matter what had happened to him. He had not let go of that treasure that God had placed in him, an earthen vessel, to proclaim to those around him. And as a result, he said, therefore there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. You know, in ancient times, when you entered into the, the, the games, the contest, if you won a race, you received a, a crown, but it was a, what we would call a garland. It was made out of leaves. Uh, and so that would be given as a sign of honor. It didn't last very long, but for a few brief moments or days, you were identified as a winner by that garland, by that crown that had been placed upon your head. But Paul says the crown that he's going to receive is much better than that. It is a crown of righteousness. It is God's reward to him for his faithful service. And he said, the Lord, the righteous judge, will award it to me on that day. I don't know how many judges Paul had stood before. We read about several of them in the book of Acts. But they weren't righteous. They were not people who were trying to do what was right. They were not people who were trying to give justice or righteousness. But Paul said, when I stand before that judge, the Lord, I know that his sentence will be right. His sentence will be righteous. 
and he will grant to me that crown of righteousness on that day. On that day when we will all stand before the Lord. But then he says something that really ought to catch my and your attention. And not only to me, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul said, there's a crown of righteousness that's laid up for me, but there's one laid up for you if you love his appearing. There's a crown of righteousness waiting for each of us who love his appearing. For those of us who love God and love Christ and seek to follow him in this life, there is awaiting us a crown of righteousness, the same one that Paul said he would get. I don't think that some of the crowns on the day of judgment are going to have a big A on them for apostle. It's just all going to be the same crown because we're all going to be saved by the same grace. But as Paul speaks about his departure, he speaks about Christ's coming. I'm going away, he says, but he's coming. That's what he means when he speaks of his appearing. You know, we usually speak of Jesus coming back as his second coming, don't we? That's just our normal phraseology. I don't know where that ever came from or who was the first to ever use it, but it does not come from Scripture. The Bible never refers to that as Jesus' second coming. It's not wrong, I think, to say that, but it's just not the language that Scripture uses. The language that Scripture uses is of his presence, his coming, his appearing, his being here. Let me give you some examples. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8. Paul was talking about the man of lawlessness, that figure that we, we still kind of wonder and ponder over who in the world that is or how that works. But he says when he comes and when, then when Jesus appears, he says he will slay him with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming, literally by his appearing and his coming. Just the very fact of his appearing, just the very fact of Christ being here will slay the man of lawlessness and bring in righteousness. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 4, Paul told Timothy to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3 and verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He's going to appear and you can appear with him in glory, he says. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. When he appears, we can be confident and not shrink from him in shame. And in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, he said, Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Or we shall see him as he is. When he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he, as he is. So the appearing that Paul is talking about in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 8 is the appearing that we're supposed to love. It's the appearing that we're supposed to long for. It is Christ's return to bring 
this world to an end and usher in God's new creation, the new heaven and new earth. Now back in 2 Timothy 3, remember that's where we started with all of this about loving the right things because back in 2 Timothy 3, Paul talked about loving the wrong things. And you remember that the wrong things that he talked about people loving were, were money, self, and pleasure. In the last days, he says, people will be lovers of self, they'll be lovers of money, they'll be lovers of pleasure, they will not be lovers of God. And so the problem in these last days in which we live is that people love the wrong things, they love the wrong stuff. And loving the appearing of Jesus certainly is not one of the things that most folks love. In fact, it's something that I think that most folks dread. You know, people today are living in a false hope. They're living with a false hope that the end will never come. They're living with a hope that they will never be held accountable for the lives that they live. They're living with the anticipation of never having to face God. They have persuaded themselves that there is no heaven to be gained and that there is no hell to be avoided. I think John Lennon came up with that, didn't he? Some of you don't know that song. Good. Just as well. But they're living in that false hope. They're living in that false hope that they can do whatever they want to do and never have to answer for it. Never have to be held to account. A lot of what passes for atheism today is simply people living in denial. I'm convinced of that. I don't believe there are nearly as many atheists as people say that they are atheists. Because they have not reasoned themselves into atheism. They have not reasoned themselves out of believing in God. They are simply hoping against hope that there isn't a God and that Christ won't return and that they don't need forgiveness and that it's okay for them to do whatever they want to do and in the end, they're just going to die and that'll be the end of it. That's the, quote, hope with which they're living. And it's a false one. It's delusional. It is a delusional <clears throat> hope. They are living in denial. They're not philosophical atheists who reason themselves into unbelief. They are practical atheists who have to decide that they are atheists in order to keep living the way they're living. That's what we see going around, on around us every day, all the time. People living the way they want to live, and then when they have to face the reality, you know, someday you're going to die. Someday this world is going to come to an end. What are you going to do? Oh, I don't, I don't believe in any of that. Oh. As though that answers it. Paul says, no, the end is coming. He says, Christ is coming. There will be a judgment. God's word promises it. But notice that Paul isn't here talking about fear. He doesn't talk about us fearing Christ's coming. He talks about us loving Christ's coming. He talks about us desiring Christ's coming. In these last days, Christ's return, his appearing, is something we should all, as believers, look forward to. But it's something that only believers can look forward to. I understand why people who don't trust Jesus would live in fear at the thought of him coming again. They should. And hopefully that fear would drive them to become his followers, drive them to do something about their sins, drive them to seek forgiveness, drive them to seek redemption, drive them to seek salvation. 
but for those of us who already are following Christ. There's not anything for us to fear. Notice that Paul said in verse 8 that the crown of righteousness wasn't just for him. It wasn't just for apostles. It wasn't just for people who died for their faith in the first century. It's all also for all who have loved his appearing, he says. That's every believer. When Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians, in the very end of that letter, chapter 16 and verse 22, he said, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. Our Lord, come. He actually prays that Jesus will come. He actually prays that he will come. The early Christians had a word for it that they just said in Aramaic, the language of Jesus, Maranatha. And even though they were not uh, Jewish Christians, all of them, even the Gentile Christians continued to say that word, continued to utter that prayer. It was commonplace in early Christianity. Christians frequently prayed for the return of Jesus by uttering that word, Maranatha. I remember being about 14 years old and going to a, a camp and the last night we had a devotional. We were all gathered around this cross that was made out of these two old cedar logs. And it was up on a hill. And we had this very moving devotional. And, and somebody got up to pray. And they prayed, Lord, come and come right now. And my 14-year-old heart said, Lord, please don't listen to that guy. <laughs> no, please. No, I, thought, I was sitting there thinking, what's wrong with you, man? What are you doing? We ought to love the Lord's return. We ought to pray for his return. I didn't used to, but I do now. And recent events make me more ready than ever to see that happen, to see him come and usher in a new heaven, a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness, Peter said. Who wouldn't be ready for that? <clears throat> Who would not love that? In the last of the last verse of the Bible, Revelation 22 and verse 20, John says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And he says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. We ought to love his coming. We ought to love his appearing. There's no question why Paul loved it. You know, his whole life after his conversion was a life of suffering. It was a life of suffering. I don't mean he was miserable every day, but he suffered every day. When he was writing to Timothy in the first chapter of the letter we're looking at, 2 Timothy 1, verses 10 to 12, he talked about the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, and that is why I suffer as I do. You see, Paul knew you just couldn't go out into that ancient world in which he lived any more than we can in the world in which we live because they're both pagan worlds and speak up for God and stand up for Christ and speak the truth and insist on what's right instead of what's wrong without suffering. 
And he said, that's why I suffer as I do. And then he said in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 9, he talked about the gospel for which I am suffering, bound in chains like a criminal. Bound in chains like a criminal. He wasn't being treated with honor and respect. He was being treated like a criminal. And then you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and there he details some of his sufferings, how he was beaten, shipwrecked, how he went through hunger and thirst and toil and hardship and sleepless nights and cold and exposure. Why? Because he insisted in proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Why wouldn't he be glad to see that come to an end? Why wouldn't he be glad for that to be over? And your life probably isn't like that. I hope not. I hope you're not experiencing that degree of suffering, but there's a good chance you will have plenty of it in your life if you live long enough. You'll experience suffering. You'll experience hardship. You may come to that point in your life where you'll be as glad to be released from your sufferings as Paul was from his. And that brings us to ask the question, what are the reasons why we ought to love the appearing of Christ. Let me suggest just three to you. One is because when he appears, we'll be in the presence of God and of Jesus. 1 John 3, 2, again, when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And even more, he says, we shall be like him. We sang it in that old song a little, a little while ago, face to face, what will it be without the darkling veil between? We've got the veil of this world. We've got the veil of our flesh. We've got the veil of temptation. We've got the veil of sin. And we strive to see Jesus and to be like Jesus, but it's always a struggle to do it because of that veil. But John says there'll come a time when we will see him as he is. There'll be nothing to obscure our vision. We'll see him face to face. We'll be face to face with the very one who loved us so much that he died on the cross to redeem us. And when he appears, he says we will see him as he is and we'll be like him. We live all of our lives trying to be like him. When he appears, we finally will be. We'll be in his presence. We ought to love his appearing. We ought to love his appearing because all the troubles and the heartaches of this world will then be over. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall be there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Imagine, imagine a life without sadness, a life without parting, a life without suffering, a life without death, a life without sickness. Can you imagine being able to live in a world like that? The Bible says it will happen when Jesus comes again. One of my earliest childhood memories, it made a deep impression on me. I couldn't have been more than four or five years ago, uh, four or five years old. It was, it was 100 years ago. 
but I couldn't have been more than four or five years old. And I was at my grandmother Baldwin's house, my mother's mom. And she was a very devout woman, and she, she read her Bible devoutly all the time. And I was at her house one night, and she was sitting up in her rocking chair, and she's reading her Bible. And I was on the floor playing, doing something, and I looked up, and she had tears streaming down her face. It scared me. And I got, got up, and I ran over to her chair, and I said, Granny, what's wrong? She said, oh, nothing. She said, I'm just reading about heaven. And I just can't wait. She'd buried a husband. She'd buried a son. She'd gone through a lot of suffering. She died in her 60s. She lived in poverty. She had a hard life. She couldn't wait. She loved it. Scared me. I didn't get it then. I get it now. I see where she's coming from. We ought to love his appearing because all the heartache this world would be done. And then another reason, something we don't think about as much as we should. When Jesus appears, all the wrongs of this life will be made right. I want you to think about that. We hear a lot about people crying out for justice. Justice. Wanting things to be put right. That's what justice means. Revelation 21.8 says, for the, As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion shall be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. In other words, all that stuff, all that evil, and those who do it are all going to be done away. And there's going to be nothing left except God and his righteousness and his people. I've thought a lot about that lately, especially as I've looked into the faces on these Zoom calls every day with Christians in Ukraine who are suffering and to see the pain and despair in their faces. I just keep thinking someday all this will be made right. Someday all this will be put the way that it ought to be. And why? Because evil people are ready to destroy their homes and murder them for the sake of their own egos. But one of these days, God's going to say, enough. Enough. Usually when we hear the word judgment, we think about punishment. We think about fear. But when we hear the word judgment, we ought to think about what it is. It is the making of everything right, putting it right the way it ought to be. It's putting things back in order. It's putting things back the way they were until Genesis 3. But restoring all of that goodness that God has built in to his creation when our Lord appears. And we ought to love that. We ought to love that. Now, you might be wondering, as we're talking about loving the right things, how does loving the Lord's appearance help us to love the right things? I think it's this. I think it gives us perspective. When we love his appearing, we have the perspective of knowing that life isn't all that there is this life. It's just the beginning of our existence. We're just kind of standing in the foyer waiting to get in. We're waiting for the real thing. We're inside the building, but we're not yet fully admitted. It's knowing that there's something better laid up for us. It's that crown that Paul talks about, that crown of righteousness. And knowing that, we can look at life differently. Knowing that, we have a completely different 
perspective on life and we know what we know what to love and what not to love and when we understand that then it's not that difficult for us to not love money and not love self and not love pleasure because we know how temporary all that stuff is that's why john said in first john do not love the world or the things in the world all that's in the world the lust of the of the flesh the lust of the eyes the pride of life all that's of the world it's not from god and the world passes away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of the Father lasts forever. That's all going away, but we're not going away because of our faith in Christ. When we know that, it's not so hard not to love the things that we should. There is one reason, one reason today why you should not love the Lord's appearing, and that's if you're not ready. And if you're not ready for that, then you should be afraid. How do you get ready? You get ready the way people have been getting ready for the past 2,000 years. You trust in what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. That his sacrifice for your sins is your only hope. You, you accept that. You believe that. You acknowledge that. You acknowledge your sinfulness. And you resolve to turn away from that sin and turn to God. And you confess it openly. And you're baptized into Jesus, buried with him, the Bible says, by baptism into his death so that you rise to walk in a new life. And then you live the rest of your life serving him, waiting. Waiting and loving his appearing. You won't then shrink from him in shame at his coming, but you'll be ready to see him as he is and be like him. What's not to love about that? There's everything to love about that. And if you don't yet love it, because you know you're not yet ready, you can do something about it today. You can right now, you can come and tell us, I'm ready to begin following Jesus and we'll walk you through that from there. Let's stand together and sing.